The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merritt, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Phil Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this fifth day of February 2023. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way, as always. Happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Uh, very glad you could be with us. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always. First, we'll speak with legendary former track and field star, who represented the United States at the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, Dr. John Carlos will join us. In the second half, we will welcome in former undercover New York, uh, New Jersey state trooper and professional basketball referee in the NBA. He officiated from 87, 88 to 2010, 2011 in the NBA. He's got a great new book out titled Heroes Are Human about courage in the COVID front lines. So sit back and relax, get comfy, enjoy the show, great sports talk, great memories ahead. As uh, I always like to begin with social media, check us out out there on Facebook. We uh, are out there called WGBB Sports Talk New York. Very clever. <laughs> there you'll find sports information, show information, so much more. Stop by, give us a look, and then give us a like. We have a strong presence on LinkedIn. That is at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me. Follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all cataloged out on the website, WGBB. Excuse me, it's AM1240WGBB.com. Well, our first guest, best remembered, of course, for his stance on the podium, after winning the bronze medal in the 200 meter, he and fellow American Tommy Smith stood in fisted unity, giving the Black Power salute during the U.S. National Anthem. He went on to have a great career as a coach, an author, and he even spent some time in the Canadian football. You will ask him about that with the Montreal Alouettes. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Dr. John Carlos. Good evening, Doctor. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. How are things by you? Well, there's no need to be complaining, man. Every day I get up is a good day and a chance to make somebody eyes open, like open the shades of their mind. Very good. Yeah, that's a very good uh, sentiment, Doctor. That's for sure. Now, you're a local guy. You were born in the Bronx. Uh, actually born in Harlem. Okay. All right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and right there between the Cotton Club and the Support Ballroom. Nice. Okay. Now, who were your sports idols when you were young? Of course, Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were into baseball, so Roy Campanella. Uh, then, as always, there was Jack Johnson. Uh, I was excited about all the things that Paul Robeson did. Uh, it was just, you know, great black images that I had in the sports world that I, I admired, you know, as a young kid growing up. And as I grew up again to learn uh, many things about them other than their particular sport. Right. Understood. Now, you, you, growing up in Harlem, you became acquainted with Malcolm X. You actually followed him around. How, how did you come to meet Malcolm? Well, what happened was uh, my father was a cobbler, a shoemaker, mm -hmm. and he had a shop 
And we used to listen to radio quite a bit at that time when I was a kid, man. Radio was our TV, you might say. And uh, Malcolm X had come on the radio. He was a young Muslim minister that had come in from Michigan, I believe, and matriculated to New York to take over the mosque on 116th Street. And I just happened to be listening to the radio. My father and I listened to the radio, and he was just such a powerful orator. Uh, things that he was saying was pretty much things that my father was saying relative to, you know, how to build a foundation of a young black individual in America. But he was so much more in terms of articulating it, and he had no fear in terms of expressing it. So it got to the point where I heard him two times. I told my father, I said, Pop, I got to go down there. I got to go down there and listen to him. My father said, nah, son, you don't need to go down there and get yourself in no trouble. But after I heard him the third time, it was no doubt. I was gone whether my father gave me the okay or not. I was gone, but he blessed me with the, the will to let me go. I went down, and I remember going there the first time, and they used to have them old wooden chairs. They would unfold the chairs, and they were lining up for the audience. And when I went in, they had the first row done, and there was two uh, elder gentlemen sitting there in the front row. And I asked them, I said, well, who was Malcolm X? And uh, Malcolm was on stage preparing you know, to come up on the podium, and they pointed to him. And I said to him, I said, man, that's not Malcolm X. And they said, what are you talking about? That's not Malcolm X. I said, that's not Malcolm X. And they said, well, why wouldn't it be Malcolm X? I said, because I said, he's too light-skinned to be Malcolm X. But all the blackness he was talking on the radio, I knew he was blacker than black shoe polish, <laughs> but he was fair skinned. And they said, no, that's Malcolm X. Just sit there. And when I sat down and as soon as he got to the podium and began to give his dialogue, it was just a matter of seconds that I knew I was there. And I was like, a calm came over me to relax myself and, and be that sponge and absorb all the things he had to say from that point on. Great story. So, so going through there on a regular basis, I think after I went through there the third time, I waited around and approached him and asked him, is, is it possible that I can go with him from one location to his next? And he looked at me, he smiled, he said, well, why do you want to go with me? And I said to him, I said, because I have questions of voids in my mind and I'm trying to find the answers. And he looked at me, he smiled, and he said, if you can keep up. And it's kind of ironic because mm-hmm. I always felt like, he said that and to keep me in line with what God had planned for me to, to run track because he was a fast walker and I would have to do a little job to keep up with him to talk to him yeah. as I did my older brothers as well. So then, you know, after I went with him a few times, then it was almost like it was a given that we was going to hook up. I would get with him and go with him to 125th Street or uh, to the YMCA or wherever we had to go just long enough to have a conversation with him to suck up as much knowledge as I could personally. Right. Now, you were a founding member, Dr. Carlos, of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. That's the OPHR. Folks may may know it better by that name. And yes, you, you, you guys advocated a boycott of the 68 Mexico City Games unless four conditions were met. And what were those four conditions? Well, we wanted to individuals to come back from Vietnam, first of all, we didn't feel like we needed to be involved in that war. Uh, one of the things of the highlight was we wanted them to give Muhammad Ali his, his belt back and give him an opportunity to come out of the shadows and make a living. You know, that was his occupation, a boxer, and they're going to strip him just based on his uh, social and political beliefs. So we were against that. 
then at the same time, we wanted to see black officials uh, and ownership in the various sports, athletic uh, endeavors that they had. We wanted to see, uh, you know, we never had a black Olympic coach prior to that. You know, so we were fighting for progression throughout the sport other than us just being the athlete on the field. We want to have ownership. We want to have management. We want to have coaching positions and so forth and so on. We're speaking with Dr. John Carlos tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, in the run-up to the 68 Olympics, you also met uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. What was uh, his response to, to the idea uh, of that you guys had of a boycott? Well, that's, that's how I got to meet Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I left East Texas State University. I was going to school there, and the racial situation down there was, it was terrible at the time. So I pulled up got my wife and my daughter, and we left and came back to New York. I was helping my mother in the kitchen, paint the kitchen, and the phone rang. My mother answered the phone. It was Professor Harry Edwards on the phone. And he gave, my mom gave me the phone, and, and it's like I was puzzled in terms of how he get my, my mother's number because the number wasn't listed, but he got it in any case. Mm-hmm. And he told me there was a very important meeting taking place at the, at the old Americana Hotel. You remember the old Americana Red Cross from the old garden? Right, yeah. And he says, uh, Come down if you have the time. We'd like to have you come to the meeting. But I didn't know what it was. So he just told me when I get down there to look for SCLC. So when I went to the hotel, I know as a young kid, many of us run through the city streets, but very seldom do we get the opportunity to go into those major hotels. And when I walked into the hotel, I was like blown away, you know, with the chandeliers and the big beautiful mirrors and sofas in the lobby. And I'm thinking, wow, all these things, boy, my mother liked nice things. Well, I could take that chandelier, I could take that sofa, that mirror, you know, yeah. back to my mom. Right. And then once I shook that off, I went to the desk and asked them, uh, where's SCLC? I didn't never have a clue at that time what SCLC stood for, which is today Southern Christian Leadership. So they gave me a room, and I went up there, and I knocked on the door. And when I knocked on the door, the individual opened the door, I recognized the face, but I, I said, it's him, but it's not him, but it is him, but it's not him, back and forth in my mind. Because I knew the face clear as, as day, but the stature of the man wasn't what I thought it was. And the individual was Dr. Andrew Young. Uh, and he was cordial, invited me in, actually, I'd like to have a sandwich or coffee or soda or what have you, you know. And once I got inside, and sat there for a minute, and it dawned on me, all the luminaries that my mom and dad and my brother and I, we would watch on TV that was involved in the early civil rights movement, they were in that room. And I'm starting to say, wow, what am I doing here? So yeah, I don't, I'm not the type of guy to get nervous in my life. But that particular instant, I got nervous when I realized who they were because I'm trying to figure out what's my role? Why am I here? Mm-hmm. And... uh I guess about maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes later, a side door opened and Dr. King walked out into the room. And you you use that metaphor, uh, uh, petrified wood. Well, that's what I felt like, petrified wood, when he walked into that door. I'm thinking, wow, my mama needs to be a, a bug on my lapel or a rock in my pocket because she always felt like Dr. King was sent by God to try and deal with the ills of society. And here her son is in the room with him. And... He had this meeting come about because he wanted to come out and support the Olympic boycott. 
he told Professor Edwards that he thought he was doing a real fine job and he would like him to continue in, in the position that he's in and he'd like to come in second in command and lend support. And there was a lot of dialogue going about the boycott, how to do the boycott. And he expressed that he joined us because he liked the fact that we wanted to do something that would be so re resounding and yet and still so nonviolent. And that was his premise to be nonviolent. Right. So uh, then when we listened to him and, 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 and I got really in, intrigued with what he was saying and, and, and his character and his, his strength. Uh, and then at the same time, I realized that he was a comedian, too. He could, you know, crack a few jokes because I guess when he came out that room, he realized that I was a little nervous or tense. And he started dropping a couple of jokes to relax me and others, I guess. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> by the time the meeting was over, I had a couple of questions, and I said to him, I said, Dr. King, have you ever played any sports? And he laughed. He said, I can't shoot pool. And I said to him, I said, well, why would you get involved in the Olympic boycott? And he said to me, he said, John, listen. He said, that's a very good question. And he says, imagine you get in a rowboat, and you row out to the center of a big lake. He said, and you pull the oars in, and you sit there, and you pick a rock up, and you sit there until everything is still and serene. He said, then you take that rock and you throw that rock overboard. And he said, what happens? I said, it creates vibrations. He said, absolutely, it creates waves. He said, that rock is the Olympic boycott. He said, now everything in the lake knows something's amiss. He said, everything on the shores of that lake knows something's amiss. He said, you have the attention of the world, and you didn't have to injure, maim, or kill anyone to get their attention. Wow, that was like a powerful statement. He Very made. powerful, yeah. I was so I was so outdone with it until I forgot I had a second question. He had to remind me. He said, John, you said you had two questions. My second question to him was, Dr. King, you said you was going back to Memphis, but also you said that they threatened your life. Why would you go and, and put yourself in harm's way? And then he expressed to me about the individuals that was working for the sanitation department and said that they were getting a raw deal and someone had to be there to lead and give support to them. I said, but Dr. Ken, they're talking about killing you. And he said to me, he said, John, he said, I've done many things in the flesh and I have been revered for what I've done. He said, that will be nothing to where I will be if they take my life in terms of what I stand for. He said, it would be like a giant mushroom and that's exactly what happened hence that time so that time that i had with him and the time i had with mark max was invaluable i don't think i could have ever made enough money in life to be where i was in those two instances powerful message from dr king that that's for sure dr john carlos is our guest tonight now avery brundage he was the head longtime head of the international olympic committee doctor uh, do you think he was a racist? I, I mean, there were, there was incidents I, I read about with Jim Thorpe that they stripped Jim Thorpe, uh, of his medals. Uh, something about he wasn't a, he, he was a professional. He played ball. And, uh, a lot of people Thorpe, think it was because he Jim was American Thorpe, Indian. Uh, Jim Thorpe, that's exactly what it was. But at the same time, he used the fact that he was supposed to be an amateur. 
and Jim Thorpe was done with the Olympics, did everything at the Olympics he was supposed to do, like like, like you might say Jesse Owens or, or Wilma Rudolph or any individual that went to the Olympics and did real well to represent America. But when his running days or his competitive days were over, he went to officiate a baseball game in Little Rock, not Little Rock, but Rocky Mount, North Carolina. They paid him $2.50 to officiate the game. And when he took the 250, that stripped him of his amateur status. Oh, and yeah. then Avery Brundage had the power at that particular time to go and rescind all of the awards that he won. And he won awards that's worth millions upon millions of dollars. At this day, that's down there in Lausanne, Switzerland right now. You know, they came back years later and said, well, we'll give Mr. Thorpe his world records back. Well, those world records had been broken many years in the past. Well, why don't you give him his tangible awards that he won to at least give them to his family? Right. Now, you know, Mr. Brownish, you talk about Mr. Brownish. When 1968 came around, Mr. Brownish was beyond being a senior citizen. So it wasn't so much he was the body of any evil coming from that organization. He was just a figurehead. It was individuals that was up under him that was running the machinery that might have had racial tendencies even greater than we what we thought about him. I think he exhibited his profile relative to his racial attitude towards blacks and minorities just based on things he had done prior to that. Interesting, yeah. Now, Tommy Smith was with, with you that day in Mexico City, won the gold medal. When was the idea broached, John, uh, to do something on the podium, because there have been various and, and some uh, different accounts about that. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's always people outside speculating like, yeah. they, they, like, they, like they were there. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, what happened was, after the quarter semi, uh, I was disenchanted about the fact that the Olympic Games, or the, the Olympic boycott was called off. And let me stop and pause and tell you it was called off merely because as many of the athletes understood about the necessity of a boycott to bring attention to the plight of blacks and people of color in the United States. But it was too much for them to bite, man, when you sit back and think about an individual trained all of his life from childhood to go to the Olympic Games and to win a medal and represent America. And now here we come into a oh, man, you need to put all that to the side. So many of them believed in what we were standing for, but like, like I said, it was just too big a bite for them to take. So when the vote came, they voted to go because they wanted to go. We were disenchanted, you know, the guys from San Jose, but we knew and we felt that we didn't have the right to dictate to them and tell them, man, beside your emotions and feelings about that medal or the Olympic Games, put that to the side. We felt that they had as much right to go to the Games as anywhere else. So when they took the vote, as I stated, after the quarter semi, I approached Tommy and told Tommy that I was disenchanted about the fact that the boy caught was called off. And I want to make a statement. What's your take? And he said, I'm with you. When he said he was with me, two things came to my mind immediately. He's willing to stand with me to do this. The race, he could have the race. I didn't run the race to win. I ran the race just to make sure I was one of the top three on the podium. That's why I was looking around to see where I was. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing was that he chose to be in support. 
And then we got together in terms of what artifacts we had to bring. Well, he had the, glo- uh, the gloves, I had the beads, you know, he had the scarf, I had the black sweater. You know, we both were wearing black socks, but most of the black athletes were wearing black socks. Uh, you know, I had my uniform zipped down. I wasn't dressed in pro- protocol, as they may say, uh, based on the fact that I was one to represent my mom and dad as blue-collar workers in America to represent all the blue collars in America because we make America spin, but we get the least amount of credit for making it spin. Mm-hmm. Now, people, so that's how it came about, about that demonstration. People may not realize, Dr. Carlos, that the silver medalist, a gentleman by the name of Peter Norman, who was a white athlete from Australia, he participated in the protest, and he wore an Olympic Project for Human Rights badge on his warm-up suit. Yes, I gave him the badge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, Peter Norman, I would say, was a man's man. Uh, you know, in my estimation, if I had to pick a color, I'd say Peter was more black than he was white <laughs> because he was a realist. Uh, he had a, a, a genuine compassion for humanity. He was concerned about the Aboriginal people there in his home country of Australia. He knew that Australia was running parallel with the attitude towards blacks, uh, people of color, the same attitude that South Africa had at that particular time. So he knew what was going on relative to race relations. So when he saw what we were doing in America and and wanted to know what was happening when we were in the tunnel just before we were getting ready to go out, and I told him, I said, Pete, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in human rights? And he laughed and he told me, he said, of course. And then he explained to me that his mom and dad were Salvation Army workers all of his life. And I said, would you like to wear an Olympic project for human rights button? And he said, yes. And he went to read for mine, and I pat him on his hand. You can't get this one, but I'll give you one. Right. And as we were going out, one of the rowers from Harvard University had some, some buttons that we had given them earlier. And I told him I need one, and they told me, he said, well, you got one on. And I'm telling him, I said, no, nah, it's for Peter. And they threw the button down to me and then uh, gave it to Peter, and he put it on, on his sweatsuit. A statement, a statement made from from uh, the white athlete from Australia. Uh, another well, powerful know, message. Sit, when you sit back and think about Peter Norman, you say, well, you know, through that demonstration, a lot of people had cut Peter Norman out of that picture, okay? And then a lot of people cared not to even mention Peter Norman in various instances. But then you sit back and you say, well, where did I see that before? When there was a white guy that stood up to represent or to have tolerance to, with society to say, man, I want to stand for those that can't stand for themselves, and individuals such as John Brown. He and Peter Norman had the same, you know, attitude, the same opportunity to be uh, a part of something greater than just man itself. But yet and still, when the portraits come out, they don't talk about John Brown. They seldom talk about Peter Norman. Right. So any white individual that steps up to the plate and say, man, I'm a humanitarian and I'm going to do what my heart and mind tells me it's right to do, the powers to be might want to strike them down and have society to forget them. What is going through your mind, Dr. Carlos, while you're standing on the podium and the national anthem is being played? What what were you thinking? Uh, Your thoughts are worth a million bucks to us. Well, the first thing I was thinking about, my father. My father was in the First World War. And I was thinking about 
the stories that he told me. I was thinking about the bullet holes that he showed me. And then more so thinking about when he came home, how he said, you know, representing America. And then to come home and find out that America didn't represent him or his fellow soldiers, black soldiers. Uh, I thought about that first. Then I thought real strong about a vision that the creator of this universe sent to me as a child, seven, eight years old, showed me exactly what was happening in that victory stand on a box in the middle of a grass field. I don't know where the stadium was. And I'm doing the same demonstration there. No one's out in that box but me. And I can hear the people. I couldn't see them. I can hear the excitement in them. They hit the kind of hand like cowboys. And then I go to raise my hand, you know, as, as a kid, you know, when you think you did something to make adults happy, you're proud and you want to get up on your toes. You want to get up on your toes because you really want to be seen. And just as I went to raise my hand up to wave, and just about where that picture is right now, that's where it was in the kid. And all of the people that was yippee-ki-yay, instantaneous, like somebody hit a switch or snapped their finger, and all the happiness turned to anger and venom. And they started throwing things and spitting at me and calling me names. And I remember going to dinner that evening about 5, 30, 6 o'clock. We used to all have dinner together. And my father could see that something was wrong. He said, Johnny, what's the matter? I said, Daddy, I was in a movie. He said, you were in a movie? But he didn't trip about that. He said, what happened? And I told him, I said, Daddy, I did something. Everybody was happy. And then they got mad and they started phones at me and called me names and spitting at me. And I remember my father brought me into his rib cage and he told me, he said, son, ain't nobody going to bother you. He said, my job is to love you, protect you, house you, feed you, and see that you get a good education. Nobody's going to bother you. I remember him looking over my head at my mother, and he told my mother, he said, bye, I look like God's got something special for this kid. We have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. Fifteen years later, man, I was on the victory stand. Who would have thought? Exactly. Powerful message from the father of John Carlos, who's with us tonight. I want to ask you, we only have a few minutes left, Dr. Carlos. We'll have to invite you back at, at your convenience. I have so much more to talk about. You had forceful words for... Another iconic figure, Jesse Owens. Now, why do you think Jesse Owens chose to side with the establishment in Berlin? Uh, why did he choose to side with, with the establishment in Berlin? In, in the Berlin Olympics, yes. Well, I don't know whether he chose to you know, side with them. I think he went there as a young uh, a black athlete to represent America, and that was his job to represent America, not to go there to raise no hell. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he was right. just following protocol. I don't think he sided with you know the the, the Nazis, like Hitler, or any of that. He was just happened to be in Germany at the Olympic Games. Okay, gotcha. But you sit back and you think to yourself, say, you know, he did everything to represent America. And once again, as like my father said, yeah, we went to war, we did everything we were supposed to do, we came back, America didn't represent us. What happened to Jesse Owens after he became one of the greatest Olympians of all time? What happened when he came back to America? I'm sure if a white individual went to the Olympics and did what he did, I don't think that they would have gone through nowhere near what Jesse Owens had gone through after he had won all the glory for America. Mm -hmm. You're right. Now, some of your teammates on, on the Olympic team in Mexico City, Dr. Carlos, uh, like uh, George Foreman, he famously celebrated his win with an American flag. Did did that surprise you? No, I was happy for George. I wish mm -hmm. I could have waved the flag. Uh, 
George was a very good friend of mine then. He's a very good friend of mine now. The difference is when, when I was up on, say, high on the totem pole, George was low on the totem pole because he wasn't really known. But after I made my demonstration, there's a guy that both was had in common, a guy by the name of Pappy Galt. Pappy Galt was the head coach for the USA boxing team that year. Pappy came to me after the demonstration and said to me, he said, John, he said, listen, man, I don't know how you're going to feed your family based on what you did. I don't know whether what you did was right or wrong, but what I do know is that you're going to have to find a way to feed your family. He said, I got a plan. And he gave me four tickets, two for me and two for Tommy, for us to come to the fight. Fortunately, we didn't get there to the fight. And the reason I say it's fortunate is because Pappy had the flag. And if you notice in the video, George, Pappy gave the flags to George. And when George had the flag, he had the flag alone. And he didn't realize until the people saw the flag, they started getting, like, overexcited. And then he raised the flag up and started waving and walking around the ring. Now, at that precise moment, the people was almost like in a frenzy or, or rage because they were so excited about that flag at that time. And had Tommy and I been in the stadium, we might not have got out of there with our lives. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that. Okay? So right. that's why I say I was at the top of the pole, totem pole and, and George at the bottom, and then we met here halfway. I was falling down, and he was rising up. Right. You know, years later, George told me that it, he owed me so much. I did something for him. I told him, I said, man, the creator did that. I said, the greatest thing I have, George, is I'm your friend then and I'm your friend now. Excellent. Well, Dr. John Carlos, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you with me tonight, taking your time at a Sunday evening to spend it with us here on Long Island. Uh, I'd love to have you back, and uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch to find a, a good night that, that works for you. We'll work it out, man. Just send out love to all the people in New York, all my home folks. I love you guys, and keep on keeping on. Thank you, Dr. Dr. John Carlos, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll welcome in former New Jersey State Trooper and former NBA referee, a fine author in his own right, Bob Delaney. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, we are back. We're back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB, and we are here in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. Well, this is the week before the Super Bowl, the week between the championship games and the big game. We're prepping for the game, big game between Kansas City and Philadelphia. Looking forward also to hearing about our friend Joe Klecko and his election to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We we wish him the best with that. Now, as I always 
talk about I miss baseball. All our weeks uh, of analysis come down uh, from the Hall of Fame uh, to Scott Rowland. Now, I ask you, is this a Hall of Fame or a Hall of the Very Good? Part of what keeps baseball on top as far as uh, in, I'm concerned is fan engagement and discussion, and this makes for great fodder for that. So give it a thought. We'll discuss it in the future. And uh, what other sport do you know that ha- has daily countdowns as to when uh, their training starts? I have 10 days, by the way, folks, so keep that in mind. Short 10 days until pitches and catches report to Port St. Lucie. Well, our next guest. He is a former undercover New Jersey State Trooper and a professional basketball referee in the NBA. He officiated from the 87-88 season up until the 2010-11 season. He's a graduate of the New Jersey City University, had a BS degree in criminology, a 2006 inductee into the NJCU Athletics Hall of Fame, and after finishing college, he joined the New Jersey State Police. And during the mid-70s, Delaney worked as an undercover officer as part of the operation known as Project Alpha. We'll ask him about that. We'll find out more about his storied life. We'll discuss some of his books and the latest, which is titled Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Frontlines. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Bob Delaney. Bob, good evening. Good evening, Bill. Good to be with you. Glad to have you. Now, as a referee, I, I love having umpires, referees on the shows because they have such great stories to tell. You officiated for a good long time. Uh, but first, before we get to that, I want to ask you about Project Alpha. Would you, would you be able to speak to us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, in, in uh, as you said, when I graduated from college, or I should say I came out early, uh, just like the players, I told them I came out early. I left in my junior year, uh, going into my senior year to get into the state police because they had not given a test for so many years, and I knew my future was not playing basketball at a higher level, so it was time mm-hmm. to move on. And I joined the New Jersey State Police in uh, 1973, went through that academy, um, for those that live in the state of Jersey, uh, back in those days, we lived at the stations. We were the local cops for towns that didn't have their own police department, as well as doing the miles and smiles on the highway. So um, we, I, I, I was tapped uh, to do what I was told was a six-month investigation undercover. It became three years of my life. I went deep cover and uh, became another person. Myself and other state trooper, three FBI agents, we started a trucking company in New Jersey uh, known as Alamo Transportation on Communal Avenue in Jersey City. Able trade the Genovese and Bruno crime families. Uh, that trucking company had two partners, uh, both of those organized crime families, and we were kicking back 25%, 12.5% to each. Um, that Soprano-esque type life that mm-hmm. I led, um, well, um, it sounds like, an exciting lifestyle. It was also uh, dangerous and, and, and concerning, and I, I dealt with post-traumatic stress afterwards. And the only thing that made sense to me was basketball because it gave me an inner peace. I knew I couldn't play anymore, so I started refereeing. High school ball, moved on to the summer pro leagues and worked up in uh, City College, New York, Rucker, uh, all the different leagues. And I was working a game in the Jersey Shore Summer Pro League, and Darrell Garrison, his director of officials, came out of the stands and asked if I was interested in the league. 
and uh, he put me into the minor leagues, and a few years later, I got into the league. Nice story. Yeah, nice transition there, Bob, that's for sure. Now, I want to ask you, uh, today's game, you have guys crying about fouls, everything. They they get look at cross-side, and they want to foul. And uh, the changes in the game, since I I was a young fan, um, the personalities, et cetera, give us a little uh, chat about that. Yeah, Bill, I, I came in the league in, in the 80s, right? And so I was in the minor league system, refereeing the preseason. So Julius's last year was my first year, um, you know, where I was officiating uh, preseason games. And, um, you know, the players were, were traveling on commercial airlines back then. I mean, people uh, that uh, have not been around this game for a long time would not even realize that. But, uh, you know, you work a game – the night before, you could be in uh, Indiana and, and, and be in the airport with the Celtics the next morning after you after you just worked their games. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was, was a, you know, everything changes, right? I mean, that's just the life. And um, it, it, it's a different game today. Uh, it, it's a different setting. We're in a different uh, place. Um, you know, our whole society uh, since Twitter – and all the kinds of technology, people think their voices matter on everything. So people complain about everything. So I think that's part of our society. And so it, 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 sports is just a microcosm of society. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what takes place as well. I mean, you can go on any kind of uh, social network right now and find people complaining about restaurants or that uh, some cup of coffee costs 12 cents more on a different block. I mean, people complain about everything. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And and that seems to be all it is at, at times on social media. Do you have any great stories for us, Bob, about uh, run-ins with players and coaches? Anything stand out in your mind that you can tell us? I think, uh, uh, yeah, sure. I, I mean, the stories are many. You know, I had 25 <laughs> years in the league as as a referee and, and five years in management. During that time, I was the vice president, referee operation, director of officials. So uh, you interact it with players, and it's an emotional game, and emotions are are meant to be felt. And so allowing players to vent and, and, and knowing how to do that and allow them to go on uh, and, and get it out of their system, but then being able to turn it off. And so um, anytime there was a situation, you know, you'd let them know it's okay to um, – use different words as adjectives, but if they're used as nouns, you're probably going to end up in a locker room. And if we right. don't know uh, the difference, we better start diagram sentences. And so, um, you know, it, it, I think fans are as much fun. I One of the greatest lines I ever heard, I was walking out of the old sports arena off the court, uh, and, and a guy was hanging over the banister as we were walking into the tunnel, yelling and screaming. He had spittle coming out of his mouth, and he said, Delaney, I've seen better referees at the footlocker. And, and so fans have great lines as well. Yeah. No, that's, that's pretty I, good. I, I laugh. Yeah. I, I wonder if that, that made the rounds where the guy came up with that by himself, but that was pretty good. Excellent. Yeah. I agree. Now let's talk about the books. You, you sent me all your books during the week. I had a chance to page through them. Uh, I want to ask you, the latest one, folks, is titled Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Front Lines. What gave you the uh, the impetus to write this book, Bob? Thanks, Bill. I, um, 
I, I've been doing this kind of work for the past 40 years, uh, working with folks that are dealing with traumatic events. And uh, it started out within the law enforcement community, firefighters, first responders, and been with the military for the last three decades. Uh, been through Iraq and Afghanistan on numerous occasions. In fact, yesterday I was with the Special Forces, uh, Special Operation Forces 20th Group of the Green Berets. And um, sharing with them and processing the emotions that are felt. Those who serve see what the rest of the world does not. And so I was driving by hospitals as, as COVID started, and I saw signs, heroes work here. And I knew that anyone that is given that title of heroes doesn't like it. It's ordinary people doing extraordinary work. So I wanted to delve into it. And I had a realization as time went on that our healthcare community is at war with an invisible enemy. So I wanted to parallel what I knew and what I, uh, how I work with to help our military understand what they're going through, as well as our law enforcement officers, firefighters. And um, so it started delving into it and interviewing doctors and nurses and you know, healthcare workers to get a better understanding. And I'll just give you one story. Um, a, a nurse uh, that had been in ICU and for about a year and a half dealing with COVID uh, patients and um you know, she said she just wanted to get out on the lake with her husband on their boat, on their boat, and just chill out for the day and get away from it all. And they did. And as they pulled in towards the end of the day, she went to the front of the boat to tie it off, and she started crying uncontrollably. Her husband tied the boat off, and what had happened, Bill? She saw a small boat on land that had a tarp over it that was the same color of the body bags of the patients she had been putting into, mm-hmm. and she remembered every one of their names and every one of their faces. And these are the kind of experiences that are common in trauma experiences. I hear it from our troops. I've heard from troops numerous times. Sir, I feel uh, it, it feels more natural to be on Main Street Baghdad or Main Street Kandahar than Main Street USA. And, sir, I can't go over a bridge. I'm late everywhere. I can't go over a bridge without checking for an IED. I hate garbage day in my town because all along the side of the street, that's where IEDs can be hidden. Now, they don't share these kinds of stories with folks um, because they don't want to be embarrassed. They, they think people may not understand. And, and but these are real experiences and real feelings. And then I was being told after I surfaced from doing the undercover work that I was a tough guy, I, I, given the term heroic work that I did. And yet I felt like a hypocrite because I was scared to death the entire time that I was doing that job. And um, people didn't see me at 2 o'clock in the morning walking around my house with my gun out, pushing shower curtains back because I was afraid they were coming to get me. It took me a long time to figure this out, but courage is not absent of fear. Courage takes place despite the fear that we experience. So I wanted to understand more about our healthcare community, and that's how Heroes Are Human book came to be. More powerful messages, folks, tonight. Before you, you were with us, Bob, we had Dr. John Carlos on. Uh, I don't know if you, if you are familiar with his story. He was one of the athletes who raised a clenched fist in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, John was on before you and he just had some powerful messages about, uh, Malcolm X and Dr. King and, uh, Tonight, uh, we're transcending a little bit from sports. And uh, thank you, Brian, delving into uh, matters more important. Now, some of the stories, Bob, that, that I got. Bob Delaney's with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Uh, some of the stories from the book 
that uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about. New York City labor and delivery nurse Emily Grace. Was that the yeah, young lady we, we just spoke about? Emily Grace, no, no, that's not the same person. It's a different nurse. Uh, Emily Grace is just an amazing human being. Uh, she comes from a family of uh, servant leaders, uh, family members who were New York City cops uh, within the law enforcement community, and that's how I got to her, right? It's all contacts. Mm-hmm. It's all knowing somebody to talk to somebody else. And so I knew some folks in the NYPD and got over to meet her. And here's a woman that works in, in uh, maternity her whole career. And now here comes COVID. And the maternity ward that she's used to working in is being split so that it's half maternity and they have to use some of the beds for COVID patients and, 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 and block things off. But think about that, Bill. Here, you know, maternity ward, that's where balloons come in and people are happy and everybody's right. yeah. excited. And now she's dealing with that. And, um, and, and the extra, um, stressors that they were under is if someone was passing, Usually family members would be there at the bedside to hold their hands or to be with them, but nurses uh, had to do that. And then they had to set up FaceTime and Zoom calls for final goodbyes. And they never had to worry about bringing cancer home or any other disease. They had to be worried about bringing COVID home. So these were all additional stressors that uh, con- that were on top of everything they do on a daily basis in life and death situations. I just believe... Uh, just like our troops, we need to honor, thank, and support our healthcare community. We were banging pots and clapping uh, years ago, and, and now it kind of seems like we're just letting it slide by and forgetting how much they did for us. And so that's my um, mission, so to speak. I want to I bring light to the fact that these are amazing human beings that are doing amazing work for us, and my concern is, and it should be a concern for all of us, is that they're being burnt out, and many are feeling like they want to leave the profession. Well, if they leave, we're losing expertise. And if ourselves or a loved one of ours needs their expertise, we want it to be there. So we have to figure out ways to be able to honor, thank, support them, and keep them in their positions and let them know how much they are needed in our society. True, very true, Bob. Now, there's another story uh, that I'd like you to recount for us about Dr. A.J. Young down in Texas, uh, who had to deal in, w- with something that uh, was known in some quarters as the China virus and how that made the Asian-American professionals on the front lines feel. Yeah, I, I've interviewed many uh, Asian-American uh, who are in the healthcare community, and their concern was early days when all of the kind of rumor mills and comments are being made. They they were even concerned walking down the street with their scrubs on or, um, you know, as they normally would do, leaving a car and just walking with scrubs or a lab coat. So, you know, this is a conversation that I think needs to be had. You know, what's, what's amazing to me is, you know, I'll, 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 I grew up Irish Catholic. And, uh, Tell me about it, study, Bob. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, that means you wake up guilty in the morning. <laughs> uh, but, Bill, it's always amazing to me. I, I did a lot of studying into uh, generational trauma and the generational trauma of, of, of the Irish, right? Everybody thinks it's all shamrocks and, and uh, happy times. But there's a deep uh, um, collective trauma that has taken place there with, between the Catholics and, and, and the Protestants. And it shows up over and over in all aspects of our lives. 
um, you know, you, you had John Carlos on, just as you said, and you think of all the work that Dr. King has done. And you know, we're all more alike than we are different. It's just amazing to me that we can have these kinds of prejudice and bias, and we, we need to come to an understanding that uh, we're all one, and there's only us. It's, it's not one side of the aisle versus the other side of the aisle, one ethnic group versus the other ethnic group. It's all, we are all in this together. And I wanted to underline that with the great work that so many doctors, so many doctors and nurses are doing who are Asian American and, and what they experienced early on in that, um, thing called COVID. Right. Very well thought of, Bob, that's for sure. Bob Delaney with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Then another story. Hey, Bill, um, can I just interject something? Yeah, sure, you go really ahead, Bob. You really triggered something in my head. You asked about an NBA story. Um, I had the first game after the Detroit-Indiana brawl uh, <laughs> in November back in the day. And I that game, the next game time they met was Christmas Day nice. in Indiana. It was the 12 noon game. And um, I knew I had to come up with something for that captain's meeting. And so Reggie, you know, and, and Chauncey are, are representing their team. And I knew the world. We, we had as many uh, press there as we did for any finals game. I mean, you know, what normally would have been just a, a regular noon game on Christmas Day became a lot of attention. And uh, when I went into the uh, captain's meeting, I said that um, I'm going to use Dr. King's words. And it, the true measure of a man is not where he stands at times of comfort and convenience, but rather where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Mm -hmm. I said it's our responsibility to show the world that the NBA is a great basketball organization. Uh, and, and, and we just broke huddle. Uh, Scoops, uh, one of the, one of the um, writers uh, listed it as the best moment of the year. But I'm not saying it to put, you know, pat myself on the back. It's Dr. King's words that show up in every aspect of our lives. While he was speaking about something else, those words rang true on that basketball court that night when uh, in Indiana, when in, in Detroit and Indiana were getting back to play for the first time. So it just struck me when you talked about Dr. Uh, Carlos being on your show and that he was talking about Dr. King as well. Yeah, it, it applies. It applies to this definitely, Bob. You're right. And uh, there's one other story I wanted you to recount for us. There was a emergency in oncology nurse in Florida, down in Florida, Leah Churchill, and yep. uh, she had to deal with the extreme down there as well. Yeah, but Leah is another example of, of servant leadership, answering the call. So in the early days of COVID, where you are was the epicenter. New York was the epicenter of it. And so yes. they were reaching out. They needed help. And Leah works at Moffitt Hospital Cancer Center down in Tampa. She heard this cry for help, and she answered the call. She went to her bosses at Moffitt and said, I need a little leave of absence. I want to go up to New York and help. And she did. Her husband drove her there. Um, he's in law enforcement. He drove her there. Got her. They got her a hotel, and she worked 12-hour shifts. And it just underlined. The humanity, how good we are. When when things get tough, we take care of each other. And uh, she went up there and worked for a couple months and then came back. But the work that she was involved in, um, there was a, a unit called the Black Unit, and and, and, and it was just a, uh, a, a very dark, 
place in, in the bowels of the hospital that was caring for COVID patients. And, and her stories of working there were just uh, amazing uh, of, of all that had to go on and uh, how dedicated and committed nurses and doctors are to taking care of us. But one of the things I learned is that while they're very good at taking care of us, they're not very good at taking care of themselves. So I'm pushing the envelope to help them understand that that self-care does not mean selfish. We're having a talk tonight with Bob Delaney about his new book, Heroes of Human. And I wanted to ask you, we have a few minutes left, Bob, about President Obama recognizing you for your work on post-traumatic stress education. You talked about that a little bit uh, in the open. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I've been doing this kind of work, like I said, for 40 years. My first book was called Covert, My Years Infiltrating the Mob, where I told that undercover story and my transition to the NBA and how basketball was my therapy. And the second book I wrote was called Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress. And the reason I called it Surviving the Shadows, Bill, is that I believe we all get shadows in our life. Uh, But I tell people never to be afraid of a shadow because in order for a shadow to exist, that means there has to be light nearby. So it's our responsibility to ourselves and to each other to get to that light. I, I, I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan on numerous occasions, um, embedded with our troops. I, I've spoken at every uh, military base throughout the United States, Asia, Europe, and um, some of our allied troops as well in different countries. And, and so that recognition came, but I also uh, spent time at the, after the shootings in Fort Hood at Fort Hood, General Cohn, uh, amazing leader uh, who has left us all t- too soon, um, brought me in to spend time down there. And, and so all of those kinds of things that I was doing is the reason that um, I was given that recognition by President Obama. Well, well-deserved, Bob, well-deserved. Now, again, give us the titles of your other books and a quick synopsis in the few minutes we have left. Great. A Covert My Years, Infiltrating the Mob. Is the first book sounds like and, a good um, one? Yeah, I have a. I'm yeah. looking forward to delving into that one, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> you'll know a lot of names in there. <laughs> Bob guys that were on the front pages. Of now, the why book. would I know these guys, Bob? <laughs> why are you picking me out saying I know these well-known mobsters? Did Brian tell you something about me? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, surviving the shadows: a journey of hope into post-traumatic stress. The second book and the third one is "Heroes Are Human: Lessons in Resilience." courage and wisdom from the COVID front lines. And, Bill, not all wounds bleed. And invisible wounds may cut as deep as the wounds we do not see. So we have to tend to not only the wounds we see, we have to tend to our invisible wounds that we may get. Words of wisdom, as you say, in the title of your book. And people can get these on Amazon? Yeah, Amazon, as they say, uh, wherever books are sold, Simon & Schuster distributes, uh, Heroes Are Human, City Point Press. Uh, they can also go to my website, DelaneyConsultants.com. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure, Bob. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us out here on Long Island. The book again, folks, Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Front Lines. Thanks again, Bob. Stay safe, Bill. That's Bob Delaney, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. John Carlos and Bob Delaney, as always, my engineer, Brian Graves, and you folks. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next on February 19th for another good show. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks.
The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.